Welcome to Blockstars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders and developers in crypto and blockchain to discuss the latest trends, technologies, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. You may have noticed that my voice is a little off today. I just got back from a Ripple event in London with the new Medico employees and um, burned out my voice, so I hope it holds for this. The tokenization of real-world assets, RWAs, is one of the, if not the most enduring use case for crypto and blockchain. According to recent reports, Boston Consulting Group puts the total estimated value of tokenized real-world assets at upwards of $16 trillion by 2030. But since essentially anything can be tokenized, when we're talking about tokenizing real-world assets, we're talking about boiling the ocean. Here to help us unpack and conceptualize this topic, drill down into the applications, use cases, and protocol standards, and better understand its uses for developers, end users, and businesses are a few very special guests. I'm excited to be sitting down with Carl Jacobs, CEO and co-founder of Home, Jazzy Cooper, Senior Product Manager at Ripple, and Ryan Gledhill, co-founder and CEO of Thala. Welcome to Blockstars. It's great to have all of you here. Thanks for having us on, David. Thank you. Let's start with some guest intros. Carl, you want to lead off? Um, sure. I'm Carl Jacobs, serial entrepreneur. I've been doing uh, this for quite a while. Got into the blockchain stuff about four, four or five years ago and pretty excited about the opportunities it provides. Thinking a lot about mortgage and these assets that, that you quoted 16 trillion in you know, tokenizable assets. Well, well, mortgage alone is 13 trillion. So that's, that's definitely a big opportunity. And interestingly enough, we've, we've been tokenizing assets for um, other situations for, for many, many years. The federal government in the United States carries about a third of their balance sheet is in mortgages. And so these, these financial products have been kind of living in the real world, but could be made much more efficient uh, on, on the chain are, are really interesting to, to us and I think a lot of other people. Jazzy? Hi there, uh, I'm Jazzy Cooper, Senior Product Manager on the Ripple X team. Uh, my main focus is on decentralized financial protocols. Uh, so right now we're working on an automated market maker, um, but I'm also focusing a lot of my, my time right now on real world assets and thinking about uh, the life cycle of bringing assets from the real world, whether that's bonds or real estate on chain through tokenization, fractionalization, and ultimately um, involving those, those assets in on-chain financial protocols. Uh, before joining Ripple, I spent a number of years in financial technology. Uh, I was in the mortgage tech space and started a company in the uh, personal financial health space as well, um, and was really ready to take the next step in, in the financial technology space, which I, I think is crypto and, and Ripple. Ryan? Yeah, hey guys, uh, pleasure to be on. So I started building way back in 2015 in what was then called crypto. Uh, I co-led a team of developers at a protocol called Funfair, uh, which was focused on making the online gaming market provably fair, meaning you could rerun each roll of the dice on chain and check the result was legitimate. We built the first layer two state channel in 2017, and then I moved into building, interestingly enough, an institutional stablecoin for capital markets. Uh, working closely with some tier one banks to build that out uh, and then eventually being acquired by R3 uh, late last year. So any tokenization built using R3's newest quarter version derives from the software that we built at Ivno, which is, I think at the moment, some 250 financial institutions. Then before founding Thalo, uh, and perhaps most relevant to this conversation, my co-founder Adam and I worked with MakerDAO to help build a protocol called Monetalis. Monetalis was a $1.2 billion uh, MakerDAO pool for green bonds. 
which I believe remains the largest RWA pool that's on chain. Uh, and that leads me to today, where we're innovating the carbon markets, disrupting the carbon markets at Fallow, uh, and really being the connectivity layer between buyers and sellers in the voluntary carbon market. So just to get us on the same page, what we're talking about when we talk about tokenizing real-world assets is placing the ownership of tangible assets, things like equities, bonds, precious metals, investment funds, financial instruments, on blockchain ledgers as digital assets, so they can be traded at all times, bought, sold 24-7, 365, and unlocking liquidity for some of the most valuable and illiquid asset classes. Anything I missed? I would add mortgages. Mortgages, yep, definitely a good example of a, of a type of security that's uh, certainly high in value and certainly typically very illiquid. Well, and the interesting thing there is mortgages themselves aren't actually securities. So it, it's a special class. And groups of mortgages are generally considered securities, but mortgages alone are regulated by the states and even the counties, the liens that you have on your home are at the county level. So let's talk about some of those use cases and applications across industries. A tokenization of real-world assets can apply to many industries, many asset types. Banks like JP Morgan, asset managers like WisdomTree, brands like Siemens have already begun on chains like Polygon, Stellar, and Ethereum. Carl, I guess I first have to ask you, how do I pronounce dollar sign home? <laughs> Just home is fine. <laughs> Just home. That's what I would have. All right. So, Carl, home is focused on the real estate mortgage industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about what home does and trends you're seeing around tokenized real estate and mortgages as a use case? Yeah. So our, our approach was really look at what was being done already um, and try to move the pieces that make the most sense to the chain first. And so we wrapped an NFT around the lien on the home. And the interesting thing about that is it's already decentralized and distributed. It's thousands of counties across the United States that hold the liens or actually record the liens. The other is that it's enforceable. And so we, we really worry about a lot of the legality of some of this stuff. And so we focus on this idea that let's take the simplest thing in the real world and the smallest unit and move it to, to the chain. And so right now, that NFT is just a mirror of the real world object, which is the lien on the home. And that's what powers that $13 trillion industry of, of mortgage and the $3 trillion that's on the federal balance sheet. And it's enforceable in the real world. And so kind of creating that bridge so that we are sure that, look, down the road when hopefully there's hundreds of billions of dollars of these on chain, if something goes wrong, it's enforceable, at least in the court in the United States. Um, then we built on top of that a system that allows you to build a stable coin. So we have a stable coin called Home. Home is backed by a pool of mortgages. Uh, that's very similar to how real currencies are done. Um, the United States dollar is a good example of that, where it's backed about a third by, by mortgages. And um, then a system around DEXs, where we actually allow people to trade home uh, for you know, uh, other types of currencies. And the way the system works is it's very similar to the system in the real world. So effectively, you come, you buy home, uh, you lock it up for a time period, and then we take that money and buy mortgages and the cash flows from those mortgages, from people repaying their loans, flow back into the, the coin itself and keep it stable. And so it's a self-perpetuating system. One of the advantages of tokenization is the ability to easily fractionalize ownership of real world assets and fluidly change the composition of the ownership. Is that something that's a benefit that you're seeing at home? Well, at the mortgage lien level, yes. Fractionalizing the actual ownership of a house is a very difficult legal problem. And the typical example, and a lot of people, what they've done is they have a token and it represents 
a wrapper around an LLC that owns the house. So let's say we have five owners of that LLC and five shares, so to speak. Well, first of all, that runs straight into the jaws of the regulatory regime around, you know, that, you know, generally a security is a piece of something. The other problem is that U.S. law is pretty much on the side of the person living in the house. So let's say we have four owners who don't live in the house and one who does live in the house. The U.S. legal system treats the person who lives in the house very differently than one of the other owners. And if you try to, quote, kick that person out or say the other four owners want to sell and the person in the house doesn't, the person in the house is going to win. And, and that's actually a core part of U.S. law and why mortgages have been so successful is if you live in the house, you have different rights than somebody who maybe uh, is a part owner or invested in or whatever it, it might be. So we actually believe that at least the first step is tokenize the liens, which already exist, are already enforceable. They can be tradable. Uh, we don't need to fractionalize actual home ownership in order to tokenize real estate. We just need to adapt the system that we already have and supercharge it with blockchain tech. So that would democratize access to the sort of lending the mortgage side of real estate investments rather than the like commercial property ownership and management. That's side. exactly right. And, and it, it opens up a market that was previously impossible to get into unless you were super wealthy or had a you know, large balance sheet, a lot, a lot of cash, like billions. And so you think about the people who buy mortgages today. There are people like CalPERS, who owns $30 billion worth of mortgages. They're the U.S. government. Uh, generally, those are not things that consumers have access to, and particularly not outside the United States. And so we've basically like blocked off an entire world of potential investors in a great asset class. In fact, an asset class that a lot of foreign governments invest in, like China. And so our, our hope is by democratizing it, we actually bring it to the, that's the token, that's the exciting part, we think, is you can invest in U.S. home mortgages with $100. We have wallet holders are very, very small in other countries. Um, we have large wallet holders as well. But I get really excited about this idea that I could basically create a way so I could generate a return about 7 to 8% today um, on a asset that is backed by a home in the United States, which is generally considered to be one of the safest asset classes in the world. I know, like I, I'm a little spoiled in the United States. I have a broker; I can invest in almost anything I want very easily. But if I wasn't so overbanked and overserved, I, it would be extremely difficult to get exposure to high quality asset classes. And it's hard to do better than a mortgage that's backed by you know a piece of real estate. Ryan, Thalos in the carbon market space and doing the work of tokenizing carbon credits to help offset global emissions. Can you give us a high-level take on what a carbon credit is and how they can be treated as financial assets and support climate goals? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, at a high level, a carbon credit is a, a tradable unit that represents the right to emit one metric ton of carbon dioxide. Uh, and it can be other equivalent greenhouse gases, but it allows the, the, the purchaser of that metric ton to, to, to then emit that metric ton in the atmosphere. There are effectively two distinct markets. So there's the, the, the regulated carbon markets and the voluntary markets as well. Now, whilst the regulated market is typically driven by compliance with government-mandated emissions reductions, the voluntary market allows participants to take voluntary action beyond those, those mandatory requirements. Uh, and this, this can really play a, a vital role in supporting climate goals by encouraging 
private sector participation. So you'll often find corporates will purchase in an attempt to become net zero. We've probably all heard that term before. Uh, and this is effectively offsetting all of their emissions and, and becoming a carbon neutral brand. Uh, and just to be clear, Fallow currently operates solely in the voluntary market at the moment. Tokenization is a super interesting trend. Um, and I think it's a fundamental market shift, to be honest. You talked about fractionalization previously with carbon credits. And a standardized credit, as I, as I just said, has always been measured in tons, simply because the cost and sale of uh, an administration has been preventative. But this really presents a problem with you know, very high quality, high cost credits, such as um, technology-based carbon dioxide removal credits. So you'll have heard of um, Stripe Frontier, for example, uh, and some of Stripe Frontier's credits can reach prices of more than $500 a ton. So we have technology providers now working in the market, such as Fallow, that are using blockchain to fractionalize ownership down to the ground which really is a huge step forward for the industry and it allows for use cases that, that really haven't existed before. Um, one example being the, uh, the retail market, you know, you can offset at the point of sale. You don't have to buy the full ton of whatever it might be, $550. You can actually fractionalize that down to the gram and offset your purchase and your delivery at the point of sale down to that gram level. One more point there. I think, I think it's important to imagine where we are with smart contract functionality at the moment. You can imagine a smart contract calculating the emissions of a ledger transaction, again, in grams, and then in the case of XRPL, passing that through to an XRPL hook, that will call directly into Fellows infrastructure, which in turn then can perform a, a, a microtransaction. And you can then retire that amount directly against the transaction, and you can do all of that within seconds, um, one after another. So we could move towards a world very quickly, um, certainly in the blockchain space, where a smart contract is carbon neutral, not as an afterthought or not on a yearly basis, but really in real time, which I think is really exciting. Have you seen a lot of skepticism and misconceptions around the carbon markets um, use case and around tokenization of carbon credits, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there was a very early initiative called Klimadao, and I genuinely believe they had the right things in mind when they built out Klimadao. Um, but ultimately, they built out a, a pool of credits, which was very easy to arbitrage. So they created this race to the bottom where people were buying off-chain carbon credits, putting them into the on-chain pool, uh, and, then, and then taking the arbitrage price off of the back of that. So it was really a kind of poor introduction to uh, on-chain credits for the rest of the market. There was a lot of uh, skepticism from some of the registries in the space. Uh, so the registries you might have heard of, Vera and Gold Standard and others, uh, because they really... The, the, the instrument of a carbon credit is, is not intended for speculation. It's intended for retirement against those carbon emissions. Um, and re really, I, I think there are ways that speculation can become interesting and can support the, 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 the build out of the market. Um, for example, Fallows built it in, in a, a royalties model for secondary transactions. This is where a percentage of each secondary trade is then passed back to the original project developer. Uh, and what this allows is uh, an ever-increasing passive income stream to the project developer over time, which they can continue to reinvest into more projects and ultimately sequester more CO2 over time. 
Um, so I, I think that's a really interesting way to look at the speculative part of the, the carbon markets. But ultimately, so far, that's been something that's given the existing carbon market actors pause for thought. One that I think is interesting is if somebody wants to do a project that's going to sequester carbon, but they need to raise funds. And one of the ways that they could do that is they could pre-sell the carbon credits that are going to be produced as a result of the product. And obviously, the price for that would be lower than the price for a carbon credit that's for carbon that's already been sequestered. And then a person could essentially fund that project. And the way that they would the way that they would profit is when the project delivers the carbon credits, they could then resell them at market rate. Yeah, absolutely. There are some super interesting initiatives already being built out in the market by Thalo and by others in the market as well. Um, we are at, we are talking to uh, you know a number of um, LPs and funds and so on and so, and so forth that are looking to do exactly that. They're, they're looking to um, combine funds in an on in an on chain vehicle. Um, and then utilize that on-chain vehicle to to invest in those forward in what we call forwards credits. The interesting part of that is what you can then build with those credits once they exist. So once those forward credits exist on chain, once they've been pre-financed, um, you could look at a market where almost like a secondary bond market, um, whereby those those uh, forward credits can be purchased at a discount before they've even delivered at spot. So it's a really interesting part of the market which is being developed at the moment, uh, and, and I'm excited to see how it develops. Let's talk about protocols, standards, and interoperability. So the ERC-20 token standard's been around for quite some time, you know, for Ethereum and Ethereum-compatible chains. Other chains have designed their own native standards to suit different use cases Jazzy, what other protocols and standards have you seen that are gaining adoption and what makes them unique? Yeah, uh, definitely. So ERC-20, like you said, is is still, you know, the most common token standard that's that's utilized, whether it's for, you know, crypto native assets as, as well as real world assets. Um, but what we're seeing emerging is, is also a group of security token protocols that are often used in conjunction with ERC-20 tokens, um, such as Securitize's DS protocol, um, as well as ERC-105 and ERC-1404. And these are token standards that were built specifically for um, the use of securities on chain and it allows uh, issuers to have a little bit more control in terms of who can actually hold a token. Um, they often allow for a token to be revoked uh, once issued. Um, so a lot of the times these tokens assist with regulatory compliance, which of course is, is important uh, when it comes to bringing real world assets and, and securities on chain. When it comes to the XRP ledger, the equivalent there to an ERC-20 is what we used to call IOUs. I think now we're just referring to this as, as a token, um, which is, a, is essentially a, a fungible token um, it works using you know, trust lines, as, as you know, which is a relational object between two accounts. But functionally, from an end user's perspective, it's very similar to uh, an ERC-20 token. Um, the XRP Ledger also has a, a native feature called authorized trust lines, which allows the issuer to effectively produce a, a whitelist of you know, which addresses are able to hold that particular token, um, which can serve a similar function as, as some of the security token protocols like ERC-104 um, or 1404. Apologies. Uh, so, yeah, I think they're definitely developing both in terms of the utility of the token. Um, other things that are becoming uh, relevant are, you know, tokens that allow for some sort of additional metadata to be tagged on to describe what that asset is. Um, tokens that have the ability to be clawbacked, as I mentioned before, 
um, as, as well as payouts or interest distributions for other, other types of um, securities such as bonds, for example. Um, so yeah, the space is evolving quickly. Um, and yes, yeah, exciting to watch. Where do features like authorized trust lines or decentralized identity come in? As I mentioned before, authorized trust lines give you know the issuer a, a little bit more control over uh, who can ultimately hold that particular token. So allows them to essentially whitelist a, a group of, of addresses, and those are the addresses that are eligible um, to hold that token. So in the case of security tokens, we've seen this feature used uh, for users that have gone through some sort of KYC process, um, and those will be the only users that are allowed to to hold that token. Um, and then with decentralized identity, we see an opportunity for um, more of the credentialing and, and more of the um, verification of a user's identity or uh, eligibility uh, to be brought on chain uh, to be de- decentralized from a, a fully off chain approach. So uh, that's another area of innovation on the XRP ledger. There's a, a standard for uh, decentralized identity and, and development within the community right now. And, and yeah, excited to see how that unfolds. Yeah, that'll be super helpful. That's awesome. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit about where these projects are now and what the current trends are like. Ryan, you're based in the UK. What are you seeing in terms of adoption, regulation, development? So I'll, I'll attempt to answer that question without politicizing, um, but I expect I'll struggle. Uh, you can politicize. So, that's fine. <laughs> I don't mind. Well, uh, I think one of the the few benefits of Brexit, I told you I'd struggle, uh, is that the voluntary carbon market is is now currently unregulated in the UK. And that really means that it's one of the uh, the best places globally to quickly and responsibly innovate in the market. Um, I think, But I think beyond that, beyond the carbon markets, we're also fortunate to be close to the EU, uh, which has recently passed the, the, the markets in crypto, asset, crypto assets bill, which honestly at this early stage looks responsibly created. Uh, we also have a political environment and a prime minister in the UK who are embracing on-chain finance uh, and innovation at large. Uh, and I, th- I think a, a really good example of this is that you've probably seen that A16Z have this week chosen London as their first international office and unsurprisingly have said it better than, than I could. Um, but they cite the sandbox approach to regulation uh, the putting consumer protection first uh, as, as, as the main reasons for doing this. And I think both of these are, are, are critical to, to our industries. So, Carl, you're in the, in the business you're in with uh, real estate and mortgages. It's reasonably heavily regulated. You need to interface with you know, court systems to enforce notes and so on. Um, how's the landscape look? It actually looks pretty good. I mean, the nice thing is we are highly regulated. Um, we're audited all the time. We have licenses in about 43 different states. So we're really comfortable in that world. Um, and I think that is helpful when you're thinking about RWAs, because just like we're all really excited about it, of course, a lot of people on the other side are like, hmm, what does this mean? Is it going to change the law? Is it How are we going to regulate it? Uh, I think the simple answer in real estate and mortgages is you're going to regulate it exactly how you do today, which is you have um, a... a pretty extensive system statewide and at the federal level for, for regulating these and consumer protections already in, in place. I don't think there's any reason to adopt anything new just because the funding source is different. And that that's really what this comes down to is we, one of the reasons we focused on the funding source for these loans is that that's an area 
where um, there's a lot of opportunity to bring capital into the system that may not have access, like you pointed out before, and to create a much more liquid market. So I'll give you a quick example. We created a product last year and uh, we're able to go from contact, meaning talking to a borrower, to funding the loan in 48 hours. That's just impossible in the TradFi world. And then the other is we have people who are using the product who actually pay their mortgage uh, completely on chain with no banks involved whatsoever. And that's pretty exciting. The, the, one of the people who did it, I talked to him the other day, he had a really interesting story because he told me, he's like, well, I, I'm doing this because I'm not sure what will happen in the future with the banking system. And that was a year and a half ago. And at the time I told him, well, you know, the banking system's great. It's totally fine. And I saw him three or four days ago and he uh, poked me a little bit and said, hey, Remember when we had that conversation? The banking system doesn't look so great now. Now, I think it's perfectly fine and stable, but at the end of the day, I think putting that power in the hands of the consumer to be able to own a home and make their payments independent of anyone else is, is a really important right, honestly, as well it opens up all kinds of opportunities around paying your mortgage versus monthly. You could, you could imagine streaming your mortgage payments. So you pay for your home every day, um, which is, is, is pretty cool. And then I, I think on kind of like the traction and all that stuff, we've basically financed about $45, $50 million in home value, um, which we're, we're pretty excited about. We've paid out to our home coin holders over half a million dollars from payments from mortgage holders. So the, the system's in place, it's working, uh, it's scaling, which is, is great to see. And, and I'm hopeful that these kind of systems that basically mirror the legal system and don't try to work around it will will be um, more accepted than what we've seen in, in the past. Jazzy, other than real estate and carbon credits, what do you see as the most enduring use cases or asset classes that developers or companies should focus on? Yeah, um, so real estate and, and carbon credits are, are two specific um, sort of use cases. I think thinking more broadly, we've seen a big rise in, in fixed income, whether that's tokenized government bonds or, or private debt. Um, which has emerged as you know, offering a lot of value both uh, on the supply side as, as well as the demand side, um, whether that's you know, alleviating settlement times, uh, decreasing the amount of manual processes that require um, you know, issuers to actually issue, say, um, a corporate bond, for example. Um, and then on the demand side, there, there's a lot more uh, liquidity, you know, access to secondary markets or even as- access to that asset itself. Um, it sort of opens up a whole new market, both through fractionalization, as we've discussed discussed earlier, lowering price points and barriers to entry for uh, the average consumer, as well as just the, the global, you know, global 24-7 access that, that you get through on-chain, uh, on-chain assets. So. Fixed income is, is definitely a big one. I think we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, testing the waters with with relatively safe assets like U.S. Treasuries, for example. Um, and then on the, the on the equity side, we're seeing a lot of um, tokenization of uh, private equities. So we're seeing private equity funds like KKR, for example, tokenizing their healthcare funds and some of their other funds that um, you know maybe aren't their their biggest and largest, but some of their uh, secondary growth funds to both broaden the pool. Uh, to additional investors, raise additional liquidity, and also dr- drastically lower their operational costs that are required to onboard investors, especially accredited investors who you know might ha- not have the same resources uh, as say a small institution uh, required to onboard and actually purchase these assets. So 
Um, I think we're seeing spikes again, just both on the fixed income side as, as well as equities more broadly. So why this uptick now? Is it new technology? Is it issues with the current banking system? Why, why is there all this interest now? I think there's a lot of pieces that are all starting to come together at the right time. I think trust is a big one. You know, crypto, uh, as we saw with the last bear market, there were questions about whether or not the space would survive. I think we've moved past that uh, and it's clear that crypto is is not going anywhere. So I think that trust has increased the comfort of a lot of you know large financial institutions, like I, I mentioned before. Um, additionally, the technology piece. So user experience, um, whether you know it's custody or wallets, uh, or even the applications that end users are participating with. Um, in terms of tokenizing real world assets, there's a big group of um, tokenization platforms that, are, that have emerged, whether it's Addicts in Asia or Securitize in the US, uh, that make it incredibly simple um, just for users, whether you're an issuer or, or an investor, to interact with a simple user interface and buy assets and, and manage your wallet um, in, in a way that's much, much more seamless than it was in the past, where you essentially have to be an engineer to be able to interact with, with crypto. Um, I'd say, say um, you know, the last piece I'll, I'll mention is, you know, we talk a lot about tokenization of real, real world assets, but that's only sort of the tip of the iceberg. Like once you bring that asset on chain, there's a big question of, okay, what's next? What, what do I do with it then? And so we're seeing a big rise as well in uh, decentralized finance protocols, um, whether it's over collateralized lending, under collateralized lending that allows that asset not only to be brought on chain, but to be utilized for important um, you know, financial services, um, you know, whether that's DEXs or, or lending uh, once the asset is, is on chain. So I think all the pieces are, are finally starting to come together uh, that allows users to start to, to test the water. And I think we'll only see it expand from there as those test cases go well. I'd love to add to that if I can, David. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, th- I, I think really it speaks volumes at the moment that real-world assets are currently responsible for almost 70% of all of MakerDAO's revenue. Um, the smart money in the, in the space, they're, they're all looking to take positions in RWA because of this, often to diversify their portfolios, um, to avoid spectacular crashes like Jazzy's mentioned. But honestly, I think it's far more than that as well. Uh, if we look at traditional markets, they've got a, a, an open and close and these trading hours, sometimes they only overlap for a couple of hours for markets at opposite ends of the globe. So once you tokenize these securities uh, and you bring them on chain, the opportunity window to trade, to speculate, to make profits on, on these financial primitives suddenly becomes 24-7. So I think that's a really important part of, uh, of, of real-world asset tokenization as well. I agree with Ryan. One of the interesting things as well is these macro trends, right? So. We've seen the largest interest rate rise in the United States in the shortest amount of time in history. And debt is cool again, right? It wasn't so cool when we were doing it three years ago and, and we were offering 7% and people could get 20 to 30% on what I would call potentially quite risky assets. But now people are recognizing that there's a reason the, the, in the United States, the equity markets are about $18 trillion, The debt markets are about $38 trillion. It's just a massively bigger number. And now with rates rising, it's looking a lot more attractive, especially since it's a securitized, you know, asset is secured against the home, not, you know, some random marketing claim or whatever it might be or pool of crypto assets. These are assets that have been on the balance sheet for governments around the world and banks for years. 
and you know, tens of years. And so I think that that has caused people to go, oh, wait a second. Every investor in the world is thinking about debt. And of course, you know, people who are involved in the blockchain are like, oh, wow, like this, this totally makes sense. I can now preserve my money. It's not, you know, in our estimation, when you think about you know, finances and everything like that, there's making money and then there's preserving it. And generational wealth is really created by investing in asset classes that are honestly never going away. I mean, 2008, if you look at it now, it's a horrible event for consumers, but it was a blip in the housing market. Here's a good example. Over the last three years, while all this stuff was going on, about $3.4 trillion worth of home equity has been unlocked for homeowners in the United States. To put that in perspective, the current credit card debt in the United States is a trillion dollars. You could wipe out that debt three times over with the amount of equity that is now available to consumers if we had the right products in place for them and if we had the right investors for those products. When you put a tokenized real world asset project on a blockchain, you have to pick a blockchain, whether it's a public blockchain, a private blockchain, and I assume you look at factors like cost, scalability, what else is on that blockchain, technical capabilities. What are the criteria that you look at when you choose a chain? So I honestly think that we're moving away from the question of simply what blockchains are built on. We've got big companies, we've got smart developers that have built frameworks and products that act as, I guess, what I would call a layer zero of sorts. So uh, as an example, we use Fireblocks at Valo. Um, this acts as our custody solution, our, our deployment engine to multiple different chains, and also a bulletproof security setup all in one. So I, I think I think the question would, or I, I would urge developers to consider the blockchains that are suitable for their solution, and then take a step back and consider the the, the life cycle customers might expect, uh, the, the life cycle of that product. Um, so, for example, you know, how, how do you ensure security in a world of smart contract hacks? Uh, what, what about how do you update your smart contracts? Um, what do your customers expect in terms of compliance? All likely much more important than the underlying blockchain technology um, as they all start to converge. Yeah, before I get reprimanded by our CMO, uh, make sure you're using a blockchain that operates a green consensus solution. Uh, because if you're building a, a sustainable, decentralized application on Bitcoin, you've gone wrong somewhere. So. Carl or Jazzy? Yeah, I think for us, there's a couple of things that we thought about pretty deeply. I mean, obviously, the first is just where can we get it up and running? That was kind of, I hate to say it, but that, when you're starting a project like this, it's like, where, where do we go, go first? How, however, I think things have evolved for us because we have our foot squarely on, in the blockchain world and in the real world. The kind of things that our customers think about are a little bit different. And Jesse, what you were talking about, I think really spoke to me. It's like like thinking about, hey, in the XRP world, we're really thinking about the kind of needs for these institutions like KYC, like knowing who is buying these assets and like being able to revoke them. That's super important to us. And it's one of the reasons you know that, that we made a decision to move to XRPL because those are the kinds of things that large customers really care about and are thinking very deeply about where they are going to operate. Um, and, and as well, kind of obviously speed and efficiency is always important. And then I'd say the, the last thing is really, you know, where are transactions happening that are interesting to this asset class? And I think at the end of the day, if you're moving money around 
and you want to be able to earn a return on that money, going direct to mortgage is a very interesting capability that just isn't possible um, if you aren't already moving a fair amount of money around um, that that you can go obviously to small wallet sizes, but for bigger people who are moving you know money around the world, having a safe haven for that money to earn interest on while it is in transit or waiting to go somewhere is is pretty powerful. So we looked at that when we were choosing our, our different chains. Yeah, I can round round that out. Uh, obviously, I come from uh, serious bias being a, a Ripple employee working on the XRP ledger every day. But you know, as Ryan mentioned. We really are thinking from an you know interoperable first lens. Of course, um, you know the XRP ledger has a unique construction. Um, a, a lot of projects out there have built uh, EVM first, um, and, and for that reason, we're thinking about ways that we can simplify um, you know interoperability for for those projects. Um, for example, we've released um, or we're in the process of of releasing uh, sidechain functionality, including an EVM sidechain. Uh, that will be bridged both to the XRPL mainnet as as well as eventually, um, you know, the rest of the the uh, EVM ecosystem. So we're definitely thinking um, about how we can make interoperability easier uh, for projects because, of course, each chain has its own value proposition, and and there's you know good reason to have access to to multiple um, to multiple chains as, at once. So we're just about out of time. So I'm going to ask each of my guests my closing question, which is to look into their crystal ball. And tell us five years from now where they think the tokenized real world asset landscape is going to be. And I guess whoever thinks they need the least time to think about it can go first. Uh, that would that'll be me then. Um, <laughs> so I think we'll <laughs> I think we'll have much clearer regulation. Uh, we see the SEC, they're on the warpath at the moment. They're regulating by enforcement. Um, that can't continue forever. There's a push from Tradfire to get involved in um, you know, decentralized finance and other initiatives and real world assets uh, because of the, all of the reasons that we've mentioned on this podcast today. They'll have to move towards that. And, and, and I think tokenization will be on an upwards curve towards becoming the norm with non-tokenized assets losing market share. So I think our, our view of the future is we're optimists and we are very hopeful that uh, I think we're coming to a future where you'll be able to you know, get a mortgage and pay your mortgage all on chain. Uh, I think the second thing would be, I think we're going to see these pools of capital that have been basically blocked from investing in these type of things, um, get access and not only access, but compete with the quote, big guys in the space. This has been the domain of governments and banks and large funds for so many years. And if you are a consumer, you are literally getting the tail end of the deal. Look at what you get in your interest rate in your bank account. That's powered by the same mortgages we make that we are offering about a 6% return today. That's a massive difference between what most people are getting in their savings account. And I think that once you unlock that capital, it will compete with the existing you know, people in the space. And as Ryan pointed out, it'll be 24-7. And so that market may take advantage of some dislocations while other people are on their yachts or whatever they're doing, um, you know, counting their, their money that they made in the TradFi world. And that, that's, that's a really exciting thing. It's a future where these groups of people are competitive on the same playing field, level of playing field, and this, on the same level of these other big institutions, and hopefully providing a better experience for consumers on the mortgage side. 
and a great opportunity for, for them. I think that where we're headed is, you know, a, a world that looks almost indiscernible from from traditional finance, except from, you know, a fundraiser issuer standpoint, you have access to significantly more capital. And from an investor standpoint, you have access to significantly more options for, for where you can potentially place your money, um, all with much greater, uh, you know, liquidity um, access from a from a timing standpoint. We talked about 24-7 uh, global access. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, different, you know, institutions that you're accessing from a, from a domain perspective. In order to get there, I think we need significantly uh, more progress in the regulatory clarity section. I think that will be uh, the biggest challenge. Um, and then I think the secondary challenge is, is the technical one from user experience and making that um, interoperability and, and access to, to these assets and DeFi protocols as simple and seamless for your average consumer as possible. I'd love to just add one more point there, David, if I can. So on the sustainability crystal ball, um, I think we really see a future where carbon credits offsetting uh, sustainability in general uh, and the thoughts around climate is not an afterthought. Really, we see the uh, the embedding of carbon credits in every microtransaction, in every transaction that exists on chain and off chain, embedding them into uh, products, deliveries, uh, and so on and so forth. So it really becomes a cost of living, um, and and a, and, a, and a way for everybody to contribute to the bottom line of of climate change. I'd like to thank my guests, Carl Jacobs, CEO and co-founder of Home, Jazzy Cooper, Senior Product Manager at Ripple, and Ryan Gladhill, co-founder and CEO of Thala. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, David. It was a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's podcast, Block Stars. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z. And remember to follow at RippleXDev on Twitter to keep up with the latest industry news, technical updates, and cool new developer projects from the community. See you around the blockchain. Oh,